Hey church family, so good to be with you again on this Sunday as we get together to, to worship together and praise God together and so glad that you've joined us. Uh, just to let you know, we have been meeting outside for the past few months, I guess, and we are actually planning on moving inside uh, this Sunday, today. So obviously if you're worshiping with us online, then you're, you're not with us in, in person, but we are planning on moving inside just with the weather turning the way it is. Uh, we felt like it was the right time. We've got a plan in place, and we've already sent emails out to all of our members. If you uh, do not have, uh, if we do not have your email, please contact us so we can let you know all the plans for moving forward and how we're going to roll this out. And we have plenty of uh, protocols in place to keep you as safe and and healthy as possible, and help to mitigate any spread of. Uh, of sickness or disease and so we just uh, we, we, we want to let you know that that we are taking every precaution but we also know that not everybody is quite comfortable just yet uh, even with going outside I know many of you weren't quite comfortable and certainly with moving inside uh, and we completely understand that but we also want you to know that we are glad that you're with us whether it's in person or online uh, we're just glad that you can join us but we are starting to to worship inside and Hope that at some point you'll, you'll uh, feel comfortable enough to join us again and hopefully we can kind of get back to some sense of normalcy and being able to worship together again in the building, especially as the cold weather is, uh, is certainly coming upon us pretty soon. But we're glad that you're with us uh, either way, again, either in person or online. We're so glad that you've joined us to worship together with us uh, this morning. Uh, I don't know if you know the story or not, but in the 1920s, Rudolph and Adolf Dassler launched their business in the laundry room of their mom's home uh, in Bavaria, in the country of Bavaria. Rudolph was the assertive salesman who could pretty much sell anything to anyone. Adolf was the engineer and the, the designer of the two. Uh, their business was making shoes, specifically lightweight athletic shoes, and it wasn't long before the Dassler brothers were selling enough shoes that they eventually moved out of their uh, mom's laundry room out of her house and eventually got a place of their own to sell and, and, and make their shoes there in Bavaria. They did pretty well, but their product eventually leapt onto the world stage in the 1936 Summer Olympics when their shoes, specifically a pair of spiked running shoes that Adolf had designed, were given to a well-known U.S. sprinter by the name of Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens wore the Dassler Brothers shoes on his way to winning four gold medals at those 1936 Olympic Games and putting Owens on the map and the U.S. track team on the map. And after Owens won those four gold medals wearing those Dassler shoes, the Dassler Brothers struck gold themselves. Sometime after World War II, though, their relationship, the relationship between the Dassler Brothers, began to break down and erode until eventually in 1947, Adolf and Rudolf decided to part ways. Their differences were irreconcilable, and so they decided to part ways. Rudolf took his family and his portion of the business and moved to the other side of the Arak River, which is the river that divides that town there in, in Bavaria, the town they lived in in Bavaria. He started his own shoe company and named it Puma, and... Adolf took what was left of the business, his half of the portion of the business, and he decided to rename his portion of the business, calling it Adidas. The town was pretty much split in half between a 
Adidas product and Puma product, one on one side of the river and one on the other side of the river. And eventually the town, the whole town, came to be known as the place of bent necks. Because pretty much before you started a conversation with anyone in that town, your neck was craned down to evaluate what shoes that person was wearing before you decided whether or not you were even going to speak to that person. I don't know how many of you know that story, but whenever I think about those two brands, Puma and Adidas, two of the largest athletic apparel companies in the world, I can't help but think of those two brothers and what went wrong between them. The story of broken relationships is repeated over and over in every language and in every culture and in every age and stage of our world. Marriages erode, parents become estranged from their children, children become estranged from their parents, siblings stop speaking to one another, long-time friendships dissolve bitterly, and sooner or later every single one of us is going to need some help when it comes to sustaining a long-term and vibrant relationship through some rough patches. And any faith that works in the real world has got to have a plan and an antidote for this outbreak of broken relationships. And speaking of that, our journey through the book of James actually brings us to a section that I think contains some antidotes. And just to let you know, James doesn't pull any punches here. I know he's pretty blunt and and, and straight to the point throughout his book, but this section specifically and uh, especially is true of that. Not only because we need to hear it though, uh, but also apparently there were some real relationship problems that the churches that James were writing to uh, were dealing with. And he knows that it's very difficult to win the world to Christ if the church is not one in Christ. And James is getting to the heart of the problem, which is almost always a problem of the heart. And so let me just give you a few things out of this passage that I think James tells us when it comes to the antidote for broken relationships. And the first is this, true wisdom is found in humility and selflessness. True wisdom is found in humility and selflessness. James starts off by saying this in James chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good, de- good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Now, why would James ask the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Probably because that's what people were saying in the churches that James is writing to. They're they're talking about who's wise and understanding, and they're probably having a debate, debate over who's the most wise and the most understanding among them. By the way, it's no surprise then when you think about that, that James would end this section by talking to them about judgment and slander. And we'll get to there in in just a little bit. But here's the deal. Usually people who think they're wise in their own eyes are also the people who are most judgmental of others. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And so some of them are are beginning to think that they're pretty wise, that maybe, maybe even they're God's gift to the church. And James basically says, listen, if somebody is talking to you about how wise they are, they're not as wise as they think they are. Let the person who is wise show it with deeds done in humility. James says wisdom is ultimately on display 
through how you live and not just what you say. You can be really, really smart and have a brilliant mind and, and be really informed and knowledgeable, and yet you can be very, very foolish because wisdom is more about how you live and what your life produces than how informed and intelligent you are. James goes on to say in verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, that's in quotes for a reason, such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you have disorder and every evil practice. And so speaking of wisdom, James begins to take on some of the wisdom that was floating around the Roman Empire during that time. And some of the wisdom was basically this, that the way to achieve a quality of life was basically to look out for number one. That, that was, a, a, that was a, a piece of wisdom that was floating around during that time, that, that you look out for number one, and that's the way you get ahead, that's the way you strive in life. Selfish ambition was literally a certifiable piece of wisdom floating around the culture at that time. All of life is a competition and the gods are watching. And so you got to look out for number one and it doesn't matter whose head you step on to get there. And yet James says that such wisdom is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. And in the end, it leads to disorder and destruction. And yet the reality is we're 2000 years later and there are still many in our culture today who subscribe to that, still subscribe to that as wisdom. They think that selfish ambition is the only way to get ahead. That, that, that the only way to strive in life and to have everything you want in life is to look out for number one. To, to, to ambitiously, selfishly be ambitious about striving to get what you want. Now, chances are that, that, that those of us, you know, me and, and those of you listening right now, would not agree with that as wisdom, right? Why? Because we're, you know, spiritually intelligent enough and enlightened enough and informed enough to know that that's not the right answer. But the truth is, even though I know the right answer and even though I would say that that's not wisdom, I still default to living that way every now and then. Think about this. There are seven and a half billion people on this planet. That's seven and a half billion individual wills. If all seven and a half billion of us live by selfish ambition, there's going to be mass chaos. In fact, as we see in our world today, it doesn't even take seven and a half billion of us living that way for there to be mass chaos. And, and really, let's just get down to the, the real problem. Here, here, here's the real deal. I can't get any of you, or at the very least enough of you, to cooperate with my agenda for how all of reality ought to be, right? That, that's the real problem. And seven and a half billion of us all have our own agendas for how everybody else ought to operate to, for me to get what I want, for, for me to have my, my pleasures fulfilled and to cooperate with my agenda. Having it your way works for Burger King and hamburgers, but it does not work in the real world. This, this way of living, seven and a half billion of us all living with selfish ambition. I don't think I need to tell you this because all you have to do is look out the door and look out into our world, but I say it anyways, it does not lead to peace and it will not lead to a quality of life on this planet. When you see people living this way, it's really not hard to see how it's not a wise way to live because it's a recipe for misery 
and it will only lead to disorder and chaos. So James then begins to define true wisdom, this wisdom from heaven that he talks about. And he says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So this, now this kind of wisdom seems like foolishness to a lot of the world because it's a wisdom that's about deferring to others and being considerate and submissive to the needs of others. It's about being full of mercy. This is what it means to live with wisdom from heaven's perspective. Now let's connect the dots just a little bit. Go back to what James talks about in James chapter 1, where he talks to us about trials and adversity. In the context of talking to us about trials and adversity, he says this in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, and of course, anytime you're in going through trials and adversity, it's good to have some wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And so fast forward to James chapter 3, this is what the wisdom of God looks like. When you ask for wisdom, when you're going through trials and adversity, this, this is what that wisdom looked like. This is the wis- looks like. This is the wisdom that God gives. Now think about this. When you're going through trials and adversity, your natural tendency is to default to looking out for number one, right? I, I mean, that's just our natural tendency because you're miserable in the midst of your trial and in your adversity. And so all you can think about is you. Your perspective is only through you. Your focus is only on you, Right? But James says, when you're in the midst of trials and adversity, ask for wisdom. And here's the wisdom that God's going to give you. It's going to counsel you to to, to be submissive, to be full of mercy, impartial and sincere, right in the midst of your adversity. Now, that's really, really hard to do, right? But that's the wisdom from heaven. And listen again to what James says will happen. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And when you see, when you see that word righteousness, don't just think right thing or, or moral purity. Don't just think that. When James is, is talking about righteousness here, he's talking about righteousness in the sense of, of wholeness, of being mature and complete. Go all the way back to chapter one. That's part of what he's talking to us about throughout this whole book, that you and I may be mature and complete in our relationship with God and our relationships with with each other. I like how one person described this idea of righteousness that James is talking about here. It means nothing missing and nothing broken. I like that. Nothing missing and nothing broken. And so this wisdom from heaven that I live out where I'm submissive and I'm considerate and I'm full of mercy and I'm selfless and humble, this is actually the way to having a world where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. It's the way to wholeness in relationships where nothing is missing and nothing is broken through living wisely in this way. And yet this path of living to be submissive and considerate and full of mercy and humble and and selfless when you're going through adversity and how you deal with others. It's, it's hard to trust it, right? You know how I know it's hard to trust it? Because sometimes I still default to living other ways. And so to help us think through this, James kind of turns us back and, and helps us to kind of see the reality of what's going on. He says, I want you to just, I just want you to think through selfish ambition. I just want you to think about it for a moment. How do you think this is really gonna work out for you if you continue living this way. And so he takes us on into chapter four. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. 
James says that our, our quarrels and our fights are prompted by desires that are battling within us. The reason I fight with others is because of a lack of peace in my own heart. It's worth noting that the Greek word that James uses here, the word for desires, is the word hedon. It's where we get the word for uh, hedonism. And hedonism is basically the philosophy that assumes that my personal pleasure is my life's primary objective. That that my personal pleasure is, is number one. That's at the top of my list. That is my life's main goal and objective. But here's the deal. If my personal pleasure is my life's primary objective, then it will inevitably bring me into conflict with other people whose primary objective is their own personal pleasure. Does that make sense? If that's my personal pleasure and someone else has that as their, or if that's their primary objective, or, you know, sorry, if my personal um, pleasure is my primary objective and someone else's primary objective is their personal pleasure, that's, that's gonna bring me into conflict when those two things don't line up. If I can only be at peace with other human beings as long as other human beings care about gratifying my personal desires and pleasure as much as I do, then I'm not going to have very much peace in my life. In fact, I'm going to spend the rest of my life at war with others and even at war with myself, dealing with perpetual disappointment and anger with others because they're not cooperating with my agenda for my pleasure and my convenience. And James continues in verse two. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. In other words, James is saying, listen, there's a better way of dealing with your desires. Instead of fighting with your siblings, why don't you talk to your father about it? You know, we, we all have desires and, and, and oftentimes we're frustrated by our, our lack of, of, of getting those desires fulfilled, our lack of satisfaction. And James says, you need to talk to God about it. Instead of fighting with others and getting upset with others about why your desires are not getting fulfilled, talk to God about it. Why? Well, for one, as we've already talked about, there's a wisdom that God desires to give. But on, even, on an even bigger scope, as James says earlier in James 1.17, because every good and perfect gift come, is coming down from the Father, come, coming down from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. How many good and perfect gifts? James says every good and perfect gift. God is the source of every good and perfect gift. Talk to him. If it's not from above, you don't need it. You don't want it. But I'm sure that some who James is writing to were probably saying, yeah, you know, I I tried praying, but it didn't work. You ever heard that? You ever said that before? Of course, what we really are saying is, I tried telling God what I wanted, but he didn't give it to me, right? That's, that's really what we're saying. And so listen, James, listen to what James goes on to say in verse three. He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let me tell you what, God loves us and he desires to give us good gifts. We are his children. He desires to give us good gifts, but God is not some cosmic vending machine where you push a number and out pops what you want, nor is his mission to serve our self-interest. The purpose of prayer isn't to get God, to get God's endorsement of my will. The purpose of prayer is ultimately to bring my will into alignment with his And so when it comes to anything we ask the Father for, I think a good question to ask is, what glory is he going to receive from this? 
Yeah, I, I want this thing so badly. What glory is God going to receive if he answers this request? That also may, be, uh, may tell us something about what we're really desiring in our hearts to begin with. But as I think about that, the, the truth is, if we're just being real, for a lot of us, sometimes we'd rather fight than pray like that. I mean, that's just the reality. A lot of times we'd rather fight than pray like that because that's a hard prayer to pray. But James isn't done yet. It gets worse, <laughs> but it gets worse to, to, to make us better, which leads to another thing James tells us, and it's this, a friend of this world is an enemy of God. A friend of this world is an enemy of God. And I know that sounds harsh, but trust me, it's not coming from me. It's coming from James. Listen to what he says in verse four. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Told you. See, I told you he says it. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And so James takes it even deeper. He says the reason you're at war with each other, with each other is because of your out of whack desires that are going on within you. And your out of whack and out of control desires within you are a testament to an affair that you're in with the world. Have you ever thought about the word desire? Desire. You know what that word sire means? S-I-R-E, just that, that word by itself. This is not where the word desire comes from, but I find it interesting to kind of break this down. Sire, if you know what it means, sire is, is basically uh, something is born out of uh, you know, a relationship. A, a child is sired out of a union, a relationship between a, a man and a woman, a husband and, and a wife. Your, your desires are sired by something else. Your desires are born out of what you're united with. Here's what I mean. If I'm more united with this world, if I'm more in communion with this world and the values of this world than I am with God and his values, then that's gonna give birth to and strengthen certain desires in my life. If I'm united with God and I'm in communion with him and his values, then that's going to give birth to and, and strengthen other desires in my life. You see, contrary to, to popular opinion in our culture and our world these days, you and I actually do have a certain measure of authority and control over what we desire and how strong those desires are. I mean, you'll hear people say, well, I can't help it. I can't help my desires. Well, actually, you can. You can feed certain desires in your life by what you feed your eyes and your ears and your mind. You can feed certain desires within you by what you are looking at, what you're taking in with your eyes, what you're listening to, and what you're filling your mind with. Because your desires are formed or informed by what you meditate on and what you think on. And what you meditate on and what you think on is born out of what you feed your eyes and your ears and your mind. Desire is a product of what you're communing with. That's why there are times when I desire very godly things because I'm, I'm communing with God and I'm submitting to him and I'm living the way he's called me to live. And then there are times when I desire very ungodly things because I'm communing with this world and the ways of this world and the values and the perspectives of this world. Does that make sense? And when I do that, it awakens other desires within me that, that are not the godly desires that God wants in my life. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, every time you make a choice 
you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. Our desires are born out of what we're in communion with. And if I'm in communion with the wrong things, little by little, choice by choice, it shapes the desires of my heart. And those desires of my heart, when they get out of whack, begin to wreak havoc in my relationship. And James comes along and says, you're fighting with each other is tied to your out of whack internal desires. And your out of whack internal desires are tied to you being too friendly with the world and the values and perspectives that you see around you. And you know what? God doesn't take too kindly to being cheated on. He's jealous and he'll pursue us and he'll seek to get our attention. And if we're prideful, how he does that can sometimes be perceived as tough love. God opposes the proud, James says. But you know why he opposes the proud? Because he's trying to reach the proud. And if the proud will humble themselves, they'll find grace. So the question is, what do you do if you realize, whoa, I'm off course. My desires are out of whack. I'm in an affair with the world. What do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. It leads us to the last thing James points us to in this section, and it's this. Submit to God and let him do the lifting. Submit to God and let him do the lifting. Verse 7, James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Remember, James says this to believers. That there are times when I, as a believer, have to submit myself to God again. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. There are times when I have to say, God... This is where I am, and I want this, and I want it too badly, and I want it for too many of the wrong reasons, and I don't, you know, I need your help. I don't need your help to get it. I need your help to change me. Help me. You see, there are a lot of times when what I want want changed in my circumstances doesn't need to be changed as much as I need to be changed. And God is always eager to respond with grace when we submit to him, even when I've acted like his enemy. By the way, submitting to God is the first step to resisting the devil. You wanna know how to resist the devil? The first step is submitting to God. The reason the devil flees is because you've drawn near to God and God's drawn near to you and he won't mess with God. He'll mess with you, but he will not mess with God. By the way, this is also the first step to transformation. You won't be transformed, your behavior or your life, without submitting to God because you need a power that is greater than yourself to battle against the enemies at work in your life and around you. And as we humble ourselves before God, the promise is he will lift us up. He will lift us up. And he lifts us up in ways 
that judging and slandering others can't. And so James closes this section with these words in verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, just one. And you're not it, by the way. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You know why we judge and slander other people? Because we're trying to lift ourselves up. And so James closes, the, closes by calling them and us out of judgment and slander because so often judgment and slander just mask our own disappointment and frustration with not getting what we want. And so we tear others down to build ourselves up. Jesus offers this promise in Matthew chapter 23. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a very sobering promise. And yet at the same time, it's a very encouraging and uplifting promise. I began telling you today about the story of the place in Bavaria known as the town of Bentnecks, the place where judgment in regard to people's shoes tells the story of division and broken relationships that have been carried on from generation to generation to generation and on even still today. And the only way to stop the madness of bent necks and broken relationships is to bow our knees and submit our hearts to God. That's the only way forward. You see, when we submit ourselves to God and we humble ourselves before him, we don't have to claw and clamor to, build, to, to, to try to build ourselves up at the expense of others, but rather we're freed up because we know who we are in Christ. And so we can buy into the wisdom from heaven to be submissive and considerate and full of mercy and, and, and humble and, 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 and selfless toward others because we believe and trust in the promise that God has told us that when we humble ourselves before him and before others, he will lift us up. And so he invites each of us to enter into the rest and the peace of knowing that you are loved by him and you don't have to fight to be a somebody, but you are a somebody because of who you are in him. And if you and I will live in that reality, let me tell you what, I think we'll find that that's a faith that truly works.